You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll continue our look at the life of Job and the opportunities that trials and tribulations give us in our faith. Let's get started. I'm excited for us to take part in this next installment of this tremendous series, What is God Doing as we have been walking through the book of Job? And I want you to uh, open up the TWC app if you have it right there on your mobile device. Uh, If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me and look at Job 19. And I'm going to refer to that scripture in just a moment. But in this week's next installment of this teaching series, we want to look at where Job is, and I want to share this word of the Lord from you. I want to share this word of the Lord for you from God with this thought in mind or this title, the hope at the end of your rope. The hope at the end of your rope. One of the things that I think is very unfortunate is that we don't talk about our low moments. Meaning it's not normative for us to readily discuss our mistakes, our foibles, and in particular, our failures. What we prefer to do is we prefer to show off in a sense. We prefer to play our hits. Meaning we prefer to talk about our high moments, our successes, our accomplishments, and even our achievements. And I believe that that is supremely unfortunate because, supremely unfortunate rather, because truthfully, it's the low moments in life. The moments that challenge us, that we are wrestling with disappointment, the moments that maybe we find ourselves dealing with brokenness. It's those moments that if we handle them the right way, those moments are of far greater significance and importance to our lives. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I train leaders, particularly leaders that lead um, groups of individuals or leaders who a part of their leadership requires them to communicate, I often share with them that if you want to impress people, talk about your successes, but if you really want to impact people and reach their heart and transform them, talk about your failures. Because it's really those moments, those moments where we've failed, those moments when things didn't go the way that we had hoped that they had gone, it's those moments, if we handle them the right way, those moments are of far greater importance and significance to our lives. This is, in fact, why there is a growing trend in the field of human resources to ask potential hires questions, uh, not like, you know, um, tell us about a time when, when, when your project went well and those kinds of things, or tell us about your greatest accomplishments. No, there's a growing trend in the field of human resources where a number of organizations and companies, as they are evaluating potential hires, will ask them questions like, tell us about a time when things did not go your way, or times when 
the project that you had high hopes for failed and tell us how you handled it. That's growing in many organizations because the greater indicator of your character and your maturity is not how you handle times when you're winning and when you're on top. It's how you handle situations and the decisions you make when things have fallen apart. When things maybe have gone from bad to worse. Or when you find yourselves at the end of your rope. And when I talk about things falling apart or being at the end of your rope, many of you watching me right now know exactly how that feels. I'm talking to some of you, and that's exactly where you are right now. Without question, this has been one of the most difficult years, arguably, in my lifetime. And talking about things going from bad to worse, that is, in fact, what I was thinking a couple of days ago on Thursday. I was asked to be a part of a prayer vigil for a family whose eight-year-old son was tragically killed at a local mall here in Birmingham in Hoover, Alabama. And I was there on the program to close in prayer for that family and was standing kind of behind the stage. And that's what I was thinking before I stepped to the podium. I was thinking, now, Lord, talk about things going from bad to worse. We, we got COVID. Then we had another senseless murder of a black man, George Floyd. And, you know, I was just rehearsing all of these things in my mind. And I said, now, Lord, now you want me to pray for a family who just went to the mall and their eight-year-old son was killed. Talk about things going from bad to worse. This is where Job is in Job chapter 19. It's kind of hard as we've been walking through the book of Job to imagine things getting any worse for Job, but it does. After losing his family, after losing his finances, after um, becoming feeble because he's so sick and sores are welling up all over his body, his friends have blamed him and blamed his children, and, and his wife has literally said, curse God and die. He's lost everything. He's lost his status in the community, and, and it's hard to imagine that things can get worse, but they do. And so if you haven't already, I want you to turn to, to Ch Job chapter 19, because this chapter is often, depending on the Bible translation that you have, this chapter is often titled Job's Response or Job's Reply to Bildad. Now, you may remember last week that um, we dealt with the three different kinds of responses that Job's friends gave him, and Bildad was Job's second friend. And if you remember, Bildad accused Job's children of sin. And he, he, in essence, says, the reason, Job, that you're in this situation and going through what you're going through is because your children sinned. And we dealt with on last week, there is nowhere in the biblical account that even suggests that Job's children 
were sinful. And so depending on your translation, um, it may have a kind of subheading to chapter 19 that says Job's reply or Job's response to Bildad. And my guest today is going to deal with that a little bit. But I want you to understand in a greater way that the focus and heart of this chapter is actually much bigger than Job's response to Bildad. Yes, yes, Job is responding to, to Bildad, but, but Job here in a much larger way is at the end of his rope. And he is really responding to this entire catastrophe. Job is at a place in, 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 his, in his life where he has just had enough. Now, he's yelling to Bildad, but, but in a much greater way, he is going off in chapter 19 about everything that he has experienced. He's going off about, about being faithful to God and, and losing his family and losing his finances. And, and he's got sores all over his body and he's, he's feeble. He's going off. He is going off. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Now, now I got to be honest and tell you that, that, that when I uh, find myself there, uh, I don't find myself there often, but every now and then I found myself there and, and there are some, some, some thoughts that run through my mind that if I could be honest, I'll tell you, are not very bishop-like. Aren't, aren't you glad that we don't live like the cartoons that has captions over our heads? I'm so glad about that because I'm telling you, when I'm there, the caption over my head, nobody should have to read that. One of the greatest theologians of modern history is a man by the name of Dr. Charles Spurgeon. And Dr. Charles Spurgeon, history records, he would occasionally struggle with depression. And one day, someone asked him to describe what it felt like when he was in the deepest throes of his depression. And here's what he said. He said, it feels like being in a dungeon underneath a castle of despair. He said, Dr. Spurgeon, what, is it, what does it feel like? What does it feel like when you're going through the deepest throes of, of depression. This was a mighty theologian, a mighty preacher, a man that God used in a great way. And when he would go through his, his, his deep bouts of depression and somebody asked him, how does it feel? He says, it, it feels like being in a dungeon underneath a castle of despair. To be in a dungeon underneath a castle of despair. That's where Job is in chapter 19. Let's start reading at verse 1. It says, Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. 
Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my ways so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated me from, alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My close friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. It would be accurate to say that Job is in a dungeon underneath a castle of despair. Job is at his lowest place right here. He is at the end of his rope. And I read a lot of verses to you, 20 verses in fact, because I wanted you to get the full picture and essence of what's happening in Job chapter 19. But if you study those verses very carefully, you will find out that Job is literally crying out for two things. He's crying out for two things. Number one, he wants to be heard. He, he wants to be heard. He longs to be heard. You, you got to understand that Job has been misunderstood. He's been mischaracterized. He's been mishandled. His friends did good for um, a few days, but then they jumped to conclusions, and he really needed their care and their support, and instead, he got judgment, he got condemnation, and, and so he, he longs to just be heard. He's been misunderstood, he's been mischaracterized, he's been mishandled, he has been accused uh, incorrectly, and he longs to be heard. And I don't know if you know what that feels like, but, but Lord knows I do. I know what it feels like to be misunderstood. I know what it feels like to have your best of intentions taken and mischaracterized. I know what it feels like to, to have the cry of your heart heart be mishandled and for people to, to think that you mean something one way when you really intently meant it from a place of purity and, and innocence. I, I know what it, that feels like. He longs, God, just hear me. Yeah. I want you to go to Psalm 116 and verse 2. Because here's the good news in Psalm 116 and verse 2. It says this. It says, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. The psalmist is talking about the fact that God 
leans down to, to listen to us. That's the imagery here. The imagery here in this verse is that God literally leans down to listen to us. Why is that a word for us? Because what it means, family, is that God hears us. God hears every single thing that we say. And not only does he hear us, but, but he longs to hear us. Job is desperate to be heard. And the promise of God is that, thanks be to God, we are always heard by God. Even when it feels like we might be crying in the dark and that we're on an island all by ourselves and that nobody knows what we're going through. Nobody understands our feelings and, and the hurts and the frustrations that we carry. What this verse reminds us is even when it feels like nobody hears us, even when it feels like we're going through it by ourselves, that God is literally cupping his ear. He's leaning down. To hear us. Not only does Job want to be heard, but secondly, he wants to be held. He wants to be held. In several places in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, you find this more. God describes himself anthropomorphically. And anthropomorphically or anthropomorphic is just a big word that means by way of human characteristics. That's what it means, anthropomorphically. It's the same from the root word from which we get anthropology, study, the characteristics of, of, of humans. And so anthropomorphic or anthropomorphically literally means human characteristics. And so in several places in Scripture... God, particularly on the Old Testament, often describes himself with human characteristics. As a matter of fact, many, 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 many years ago, uh, when I was, uh, I think, in college, uh, someone gave me a book uh, by Bishop Kenneth Omer, who's one of our apostolic elders, and he's my pastor. I didn't know him back then, and it was one of the, uh, I think, the second book that he had ever written and it was a book that just blessed my life. And the book was called The Anatomy of God. And in that book, that's, that's all he did. He talked about a lot of the Old Testament references that describe God anthropomorphically. He talked about the hands of God. He talked about the eyes of God. He talked about the feet of God, the mind of God. It was an amazing book called The Anatomy of God because... God often refers to himself anthropomorphically with human characteristics. And so one of the anthropomorphisms of God, one of the human characteristics of God, listen to me, is that he holds us. Turn to John 13. In the New Testament, in John chapter 13... Many of you may be, if you've grown up in and around church, you may be familiar with this passage. This is um, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And uh, what's important about understanding this as we get into John 13, particularly in John's gospel, is that John was the youngest disciple. He was the youngest disciple. John was the youngest disciple um, many, in fact, scholars believe that in John 13, 
this account of the Last Supper, John was around 13 years old. John was the youngest disciple, and according to Jewish custom, it is the youngest uh, at the Passover meal who asks the most questions. So, um, what I want you to understand is that John is asking questions here in John chapter 13, and let's pick it up at verse 21, because Jesus says that one of them that are eating with them will betray him. And let's pick it up at verse 21, and it says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, he goes on here, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Here it is. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved. Isn't it interesting that this is how John describes himself? I could just imagine the kind of contention around the other disciples. John is basically saying, y'all know he loved me more than he loved y'all. But it says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John talking about himself, here it is, was reclining next to him. He's, he's literally leaning on Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is, is holding him, and, and he says, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one, because, because he's that close. He's leaning on Jesus, and it, it goes on and says, and leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? He's, he's up against Jesus, and maybe Jesus' arm is around him, and he says, Jesus, who is it that's going to betray you? As I said a moment ago, most scholars believe that at this time in John 13, John was about 13 years old. Now, John is not used of Holy Spirit to write the gospel until his latter years. Most scholars believe that when John actually wrote the gospel down, talking about a difference between when the events happened and when he actually wrote about it. Most scholars believe that when John actually wrote um, the gospel, that he was in his mid-60s. He was in his mid-60s. Now, turn with me to John 21 and verse 20. This is the end of John's gospel. And this is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament because this is the chapter where he reinstates Peter. And it says in verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, there it is again, John writing about himself, who was following them, this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who was going to betray you? And why is this important? Because this is the end of John's gospel account. And you must understand that what was customary in literature at this time in history was that if you were going to write a document and you wanted to assure that it was credible, then what most writers would do at this time when the Bible was actually penned is that most writers, if you were writing a document and you wanted to assure that it was credible, that you were a credible witness or a credible source, which is really important when it came to people describing the life and encounters of Jesus, 
then what was customary is that at the end of your book, at the end of your gospel, or at the end of your missive, if you're the Apostle Paul writing to, to different churches, you would list, and the Apostle Paul does this, you would list what qualified you to be the author. This is why often the Apostle Paul would say things like, I speak in tongues more than all of y'all. He's literally saying, I'm qualified to talk about tongues and to talk about prophecy and spiritual gifts. And so he did that because it was normal at that time that if you were writing a document, you wanted to assure its credibility. And how you would do that is you would list what qualified you to be an author at the end of the document. So at this point in John's gospel, it would have been appropriate, according to the culture of that day, to literally list what qualified him to write this gospel. John could have said, you know, I, I saw him turn water to wine. John could have said, I planted churches uh, uh, across Asia Minor. John could have said that I was one of the uh, chief apostles and, and, and one of the ones that helped to really administrate apostolically um, the New Testament church as it grew in, in the book of Acts. He could have listed all of that, but he didn't list any of that. Instead, he defines himself. He says, what qualifies me to write this gospel is I was the one who leaned against Jesus. I was the one that he held. This defines John, that Jesus held me. Family, what I want you to understand is that God holds his children. All through Scripture, God shows us over and over and over again that he holds his children. And I can tell you personally, so many times when, when I was at the end of my rope, so many times when I wanted to throw in the towel, so many times when I wanted to just give up and walk away and go my own way, that, that it was God holding me that sustained me. It was when, when I felt the tangible hands of God wrap themselves around me and pull me close. That has sustained me. I can tell you over and over and over again what has sustained this church is, is God held us. Because he's a father to the fatherless, a mother to the motherless. You know, in, in my home, my wife and I, a part of our kind of bedtime ritual is that you know, we go to bed early or whatever before our kids or if we're kind of getting ready for bed. One of the things that we do in the Moody home is that our kids will come in our room and um, we will hug them tight. You know, they look, their rooms are kind of upstairs and our bedroom is on the main level. And they will come in, come downstairs, come into our bedroom and, and we'll pull them real tight and we'll hold them and we'll, we'll kiss them and we'll talk about how much we love them. And every time I try to squeeze them so tight because I want them to know how much their father loves them. In seasons of grief, in seasons of difficulty, that's what God does for us. That's his character. He pulls us close and he squeezes us real tight. Job is desperate to be heard. He's desperate to be held. And that's where many of us are right now. We need to be heard. 
But instead, we settle for the unfulfilling fakeness of social media. We need to be held. But instead, we settle for phony friendships and pseudo-intimacy. In my book, Desired by God, and let me just give a shameless plug, great book, ought to get it, particularly in times like these, because a lot of people, when we go through difficulty, say, well, where is God? And, and atheists often use times like this to try to prove to people that God is not real, and well, how could you serve a God like that? And I really deal with that in that book, Desired by God, and I help to debunk a lot of misunderstandings about the character of God in that book. But in my book, Desired by God, in the opening, I, I wrote a little bit about a woman, listen to me, named Amma. And Amma is a Hindu spiritual leader who gets this, get this rather, she travels the world, and this is pre-COVID, she travels the world just to hug people. At the time the Desire by God came out, um, she was 63, so that would make her around 65 years old now. And this happened because when she was younger, she just noticed that people were drawn to her. People would come to her to talk to her, and then she would just spontaneously hug them. And now decades later, get this, people travel, pre-COVID, people travel across the world and line up for days in order for Emma to listen to them and to hug them. To date, get this, more than 34 million people have been hugged by Emma. And she's been known to give out hugs sometimes for more than 22 hours at a time. But as remarkable as Emma's story is, I know somebody better than Emma. His name is Jesus. And you don't have to go all the way to India to get a hug from him. He's right there with you. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't condemn you. He's not here to use your past uh, and throw it up in your face and say, see, and no, 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 no. He, he, he has his arms wide open. As a matter of fact, that's part of the reason why 2,000 plus years ago on a hill called Calvary, they hung him high and they stretched him wide because he wanted the world to see that his arms were open waiting to embrace us. Job wants to be heard. Job wants to be held. But watch this. Out of a deep sense of tragedy comes the most beautiful word and worship of triumph. Because it is in this same chapter that something happens that literally is what most people know the book of Job for. Because sometimes, hear me family, sometimes the biggest miracles grow in the hardest of soil. And it blooms when we least expect it to. Because out of this deep despair, Job makes a declaration. 
Go back to Job 19 and, and pick me up at verse 25. I want you to see out of this deep sense of tragedy comes beautiful word and worship of triumph because in verse 25 of Job 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's the shouting part. Job just a few verses ago was talking about how down and how depressed and how downtrodden he was. But there's something that happens at the end of his rope. He finds hope. Job is depressed. He's dejected. He is in a dungeon underneath a castle of despair. He is at the end of his rope, but instead of letting go, he finds hope. He says, I know. I know. Wait a minute. I know. I may not have money. I may not have family. I may not have friends. I may not even have good health, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I know as Redeemer, he means the kinsman Redeemer, meaning he says that I know that God is kin to me, that no matter where I am, he loves me enough that he's going to find me and he's going to redeem me. He's going to bring me through this. Why is this important, Bishop? Because family, you need to understand, listen to me, that every path to the mountaintop leads through a valley of despair. That's so good, Bishop. Say it again. Every path to the mountaintop leads through a valley of despair. I got to say it again because your neighbor didn't get it. Your, your husband, your spouse didn't get it. Your children need to get this. Every path, every path to the mountaintop leads through the valley of despair. And what I have learned over these years of walking with God, and you see this clearly in Job's life, is that part of the reason why God allows our paths to go through valleys of despair is because it's in the valley that is specifically designed to mature us. The valley is designed to mature us. See, it's in the valley that we decide, listen to me, whether or not we're going to give up or grow up. I'm teaching better than you responded in your homes. It's in the valley that we decide if we're going to give up or grow up because the valley is designed to mature us. You remember God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. That's a mountaintop experience. But before he gets to the mountaintop, guess where his path leads him? Through the valley. For 25 years, he's wondering, God, are you going to fulfill your promise? Because God is maturing him. You remember, he, he births Moses to be, to be a deliverer for the nation of Israel. That's mountaintop. But his path leads him through the valley of despair because he murders a man, buries him in the sand, flees for his life because Pharaoh wants to kill him and spends 40 years. That's valley of despair kind of stuff. On the backside of a Midianite desert. Why? Because God was maturing him. It wasn't that Moses did the wrong thing. He did the wrong thing the wrong way. He killed the man because he saw this man being mistreated, but you activated your, 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 your desires and you did it in your faith, I mean in your flesh, instead of trusting me and operating by faith. So I got to send you through this valley, Moses, to mature you. Forty years on the backside of a Midianite desert, the nation of Israel. He says, I want you to come out of Egypt and I'm going to lead you into a land 
flowing with milk and honey, but he didn't take them the shorter route. He intentionally took them through a path um, where they had to cross the Red Sea and wander in the wilderness. Why? Because that was a valley stuff. He even says it in Deuteronomy. I took you that way to see, to test your heart, to, to see if you would trust me. In other words, I took you that way through what appeared to be a valley of despair because it was designed to mature you. Why is this important? Because family, remember the insinuation of the enemy. The enemy says to God, the only reason Job is faithful is because of what you've done. It's because he's blessed. Because he's got this. But, but Lord, I believe that if you let COVID-19 happen, I believe that if you just, if you allow tragedy and calamity to happen, that Job won't be faithful. If you allow him to go through the valley of despair, he, he says, God, the only reason Job is faithful because he's on the mountaintop now. Everything is going his way now. Everybody's patting him on the back now. He's got enough money in the bank now. But if you take him through the valley of despair, he won't be faithful. And remember, I shared with you in week one that what God allowed to happen to Job was not punitive. It wasn't a punishment. It really was a promotion. God thought the best of Job, and he says, no, 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 I believe in Job. Have you tried my servant Job? He says, no, no, here, here, try him, because I know, I know that even when Job goes through the valley of despair, he's still going to be faithful. This is why it's significant to note that Job is the oldest written book of the Bible, because I believe that this was the number one lesson that God wanted us to understand. Can you be faithful? Faithful, even in the valley of despair. See, God believes like he did with Job. God believes the best in you. But can I be honest and tell you, while God believes the best in you, Satan is betting against you. Satan is betting against you. He's saying, oh, God, just let COVID happen. They won't be faithful to you. Oh, God, just, just let the divorce happen. They won't be faithful to you. Oh, God, just, just put a few, few roadblocks in their path. Uh, put a few people uh, that may be a little difficult to deal with in their path. They won't be faithful to you. God, put, put, put some folk uh, who frustrate them and, and find every button and get on their last nerves in their way, and they won't be faithful to you. Satan is betting against you. But God says, no, I, I believe the best in them. God says, so have you tried my servant Job? Have you tried the Johnsons? Have, have, you, have, you, have you tried the Colemans? Or have you, have you tried the Moody's? Or have, have you tried the Davises? Have you, have you tried the, the Mitch Koras? Because God believes the best in you. And he knows that this valley is purposeful. Because when you are in the valley... When you are at the end of your rope and everything has been stripped away, that is when the value of your relationship with God is really revealed. Oh, teach, Bishop. <laughs> That's when it's really revealed. When, when, when there's nothing else. That's when the real value, what does this walk with God mean to you? Uh, that's when it's revealed. You know, people say, they come down to the altar, and they say, oh, I love you, oh, I love you. You can't wait to get married, and praise God. And Bishop, we're ready, would you marry us? And then they say, uh, I take this person to be my lawfully wedded husband, or I take this woman to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold. And then they have people reading from 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind. And everybody's just, oh, it's so nice. And everybody's crying and it's pretty. 
And I'm the one in the center like, mm, okay. For better, for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. And I know it's pretty and he's got on the dress and he's got on the tux and they've got the elaborate wedding reception. Everybody's ready to go on honeymoon and it's cute now. But the real weight of those vows will be revealed when you go through the valley of despair. There, there are people tell me all the time, Bishop, I love you. Bishop, I got your back. Bishop, I'm with you. And I, I really sincerely appreciate that. I really do. But I know the true weight of those words won't really mean anything when everything is going the way you want it to go. No, the true weight of those words will be revealed when you go through the valley of despair. It's the same way with God. We say, God, we love you. God, we adore you. God, we magnify you. God, we praise you. God, we worship you. Worship, the term, comes from an old English word, worth-ship. So when you worship, you declare in your worship God's worth to you. And I'm not just talking about on this stage or in your home. The Bible tells us that our whole life, every day of our life, should be worship to God. And when you worship, you are declaring God's worth. And so when you're in the valley of despair and your lip is poked out and I don't want to pray and I'm not getting on the breakthrough prayer call. I'm tired of praying. I'm sick of being at home with COVID and blah, 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 blah. And I don't feel like doing X, Y, and Z. You're in the valley of despair. Yes, but God is saying, is that what I'm worth to you? Job is at the lowest point. And at that low point, he doesn't give up. He finds hope because he says, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I may have lost a whole bunch, but I still got God. I, I may have lost everything, but you know what? I know that my Redeemer lives, that God is worth more to me than anything that I've ever lost. And so I may be at the end of my rope, but I found a knot at the end of my rope that enables me to hold on, and his name is Jesus. This is why I think this is one of the oldest written books, the oldest written book of the Bible. Because I think, you know, I think God says, this is the first thing I want you to learn. I think God was sitting up in heaven and the whole time he knew Job was going to handle this the right way. And, and when Job says, even at his lowest point, but I know my Redeemer lives and I know that God will come through. I bet you God was up in heaven saying, see, I can work with that all day. That's my dude right there. That's the kind of behavior and characteristic that is indicative of a mature believer. Job, you go, boy. I bet you God was up there giving Job high five. Job, you better do the doggone thing. And it's interesting because we love to jump to the end of Job and celebrate how he got double for his trouble. That's the next mountaintop. He wouldn't have gotten to the next mountaintop and gotten double if in the valley he didn't choose maturity and choose God. What about you? I love the way Habakkuk says it in Habakkuk 3 and 17. And I'm over my time and I need to introduce our guest, but, but I feel such a tug in the spirit that this is a word for several of you. 
But Habakkuk 3 and 17, Habakkuk the prophet says it like this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Translation, even when I'm at my lowest, when all hell is breaking loose. Habakkuk says, yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Here is the promotion, and he will make my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on heights. Notice how he goes into the valley and says, but I'm still going to trust God. And then he's back on the next mountaintop. He makes my feet like deer. He enables me to tread on heights. Because there is hope at the end of your road. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.